Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, just depending on where you are. Thank you for joining us for another episode of We Are Alchemists. I am Ben Putley, the CEO and co-founder of Alchemy Exchange, and it's my pleasure to say I'm joined today by Chandru, the CTO, and Brian O'Byrne. I'm going to be very quiet on this one because I feel like I'm the stupidest person on the call. Um, <laughs> but today, I think... I've had to stop these two talking because they had something very good conversations. We wanted to say it for the podcast. And I think most of that was focused around custom consensus mechanisms, which I think are the the golden bullet for, I think, crypto. And I think today, maybe if we go through some examples, we'll start with the Alchemy custom consensus because it's very close to home um, on just what that means, what's different about that from a smart contract and kind of what the future looks like with custom consensus mechanisms. So with that, Chandru, I will throw the mic over to you and maybe explain how our custom consensus mechanism works that's very different to a smart contract, perhaps. Thanks, Ben. Um, hello, everybody. Um, hello, Brian. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, so yeah, Brian and I were talking uh, outside the room, actually, about uh, custom consensus when we were pulled in to this conversation. And uh, um, there's... I personally believe that uh, custom consensus is is a game changer for any business that wants to build on the hypergraph. Um, and uh, the way Alchemy is using custom consensus is that, for example, there's there's so much of ad fraud that's involved in the ad ecosystem, and we are completely reliant on the people who are running the ad exchanges in order to deal with the ad fraud and give us the comfort that everything is okay, all all is good, but we really need to do more in order to deal with ad frauds, in mm -hmm. order to give the confidence to the customer, the user, the end user, that their data is not being misused, that the publishers are getting the best value for their money, the advertisers are showing their brands to the right kind of people on the right kind of sites, which has the right kind of content catered to their brand. So there's there's there are multiple players and each of them have their own issues with the way the ad ecosystem works today. Mm -hmm. And all of that can be brought together in a decentralized way. The whole business logic built in a decentralized way using the concept of custom consensus. So we are no longer reliant on a single party to take the actions to ensure that every party in the ecosystem is able to meet their business needs. And the only way to do that is to build all of that business logic, all of the compliance, all of the best practices in a decentralized way where, where you know, and, and that's where the state channel comes into picture, where that piece of software runs on various nodes, not nodes or processing units owned by a single party. I think you're bang on. And I think one of the things that made me most excited about um, the power of a custom consensus mechanism is that it's OpenRTB, right? And what OpenRTB did under the radar was created the first oracle in my opinion it turned human beings into a data set which advertisers could use to algorithmically bid on the value of that individual what it meant for their marketing strategy so it was already there you know like and the fact that the advertising which is very disparate and siloed managed to come up with that kind of blew my mind anyway and that's often not thought of you know like you think about projects like Chainlink, which have hundreds of millions of dollars in a market cap that are just doing what OpenRTB did, albeit with less depth because they're limited to a smart contract, you know, like, and I kind of describe a smart contract like a dumb waiter, you know, like if this, then that, not even that, just when this happens, do this, you know, like 
Whereas with the custom consensus mechanism, you can layer on a number of different decision trees to get you to that point, which is, let's say in your example, proving that there was no ad fraud on a particular transaction. You know, so it's it's the perfect marketplace, I think, a very low barrier to entry data marketplace that if you have a website you're part of, you probably didn't really realize that, but that to me is right there. Everyone uses the internet. It's kind of the lowest hanging fruit I think we could find to bring a radical technology like custom consensus mechanisms to the real world, right? And that for me will be the next trend of crypto projects is utility. You know, like we've had DeFi, we had ICOs, we've had some NFTs, you know, like for me, NFTs are the gave crypto its cultural moment, which is that kind of first promise of utility. And now I think custom consensus mechanisms can really deliver on that. Yeah. Took a pause there because I talk forever. <laughs> yeah, uh, 100% agree. Um, you know, the way I think about blockchain and DLT <clears throat> is essentially that it provides a trust layer for the internet. And uh, in the case of the hypergraph, the way it's designed is to essentially provide trust over arbitrarily complex data sets. And whilst that might sound quite dry, <laughs> it is absolutely revolutionary because rather than having the, the dumb waiter smart contract, um, what you have is essentially creative freedom, mm -hmm. right? You can create custom consensus, um, which is as sophisticated as ornate, as wide ranging and, and transformative as you can imagine. Um, so with this trust layer, the important thing, right, with a trust layer is that you actually are able to use it for a variety of things. Uh, Bitcoin basically provided trust over account balances mm -hmm. of Bitcoin, and it was revolutionary as a proof of concept for decentralized money. But what we're moving into now is sort of the third wave of blockchain technology, mm -hmm. which is it in its fullest re realization. It's enabling entrepreneurs to really create uh, in a way that is, um, you know, profound. And I think we, you know, here at Alchemy, I think you guys are the flagship for this. You're applying, you're applying this technology in a way that is so revolutionary that it solves so many problems uh, in a, in such a big industry. And so, yeah, I really think it's phenomenal and it's a brilliant flagship for, for this tech. I'll send you 20 pounds after. <laughs> but I think to like, to go like full red pill on everyone, it's like, you could argue this podcast is a state channel. Hmm. I'm a validator, you're a validator, you're a validator. We have our own custom consensus mechanisms that we've created throughout our lives that allow us to know that I can sit on a chair because it will support my weight. I can use a table because it's in front of me, you know, that's all if this, then that. Right. So that's then really like, okay, everything's a state channel. And if everything's a state channel, why would you not want to build a state channel for everything? You right. know, like it, it's just how complex can that custom consent? My, my brain is a very, very, very complex, give myself a lot of credit, <laughs> complex consensus mechanism at the end of the day, um, which is a little bit matrix, but like when you apply it to big data marketplaces, why wouldn't you build a state channel, you know, mm -hmm, like... Absolutely. Yeah. It's obvious. It's a, it's a super interesting question, right? Like you... So first of all, I think we are in a cultural moment mm -hmm. where there is a crisis uh, related to lack of trust in institutions. Yeah. Institutions that purported to govern the world in our interest have essentially let us down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
in a lot of different uh, senses, in a lot of different uh, verticals in the economy, as well as politically, socially, and so on. So being able to create a system of trust independent of those institutions is, uh, you know, a very attractive mm -hmm. option at the moment, especially. Um, but also, as you say, there's this even more basic default question, right? Why wouldn't you want your data sets in your application or the, uh, you know, the various applications through which mm -hmm. you govern your life and, you know, things like your f finances and so on? Why wouldn't you want all of this to be trustless? Yeah. Because you're basically removing one aspect that is a potential failure, even if it hasn't failed you yet. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a, there is, it seems a natural choice to choose to create more trust in your life, more trust in your relationships and in the, you know, various applications you use to, to live your life. Yeah, it's like kind of what you all strive for, to have a group of people that you trust and you spend all your time with them, you know? So why would you not want an infrastructure that facilitates that, you know, like... <clears throat> Without getting too political, you know, like you look at the way that the Supreme Court in the US is right now, it's that taxpayers are paying salaries to have people make decisions based on religion. You know, mm -hmm. like that doesn't really make any sense. There's clearly some ulterior motives mm -hmm. that are going on there, whatever they may be. That's all I want to say on it. But like creating a means to have your data be judged fairly trustlessly is just the obvious way to go, right? Like mm -hmm. it it seems inevitable really for me that this will be the prevailing technology that takes us through into whatever web three and whatever the next 10, 15, 20 years look like, you know, it, it, it feels very pivotal and it's quite exciting. So we're getting close at this point, you know, yeah, for yeah. mainnet 2.0 and like that will be the first step into making this a reality. Yeah, that's very true. In fact, you know, the custom consensus does not really have to be restricted to mm. building a business logic. There's so many layers to how the custom consensus can be used by any project, any business, any organization. We can actually look at mimicking human behavior because it's custom. You know, mm. we can build anything using this mechanism. It's like a Lego block as, as, uh, uh, has been referred to many times before and what can we use it to uh, to build is, is, is an entirely up to our creativity for example uh, Bran and I were just talking about uh, building uh, compliance regulation just a few minutes ago um, uh, using the custom consensus so that's that's a game changer in itself mm -hmm. if we can actually prove to the world that we are actually complying with the law of the land with all the regulations that come with crypto and that being uh, uh, th that that's probably one of the uh, least trusted uh, um, uh, areas mm -hmm. in crypto today that is you know uh, uh, compliance <coughs> to regulation so mm -hmm. if we can prove to the world that we are complying with all the relevant regulations on the blockchain that is building it in a custom consensus way. Everybody can see the code. Uh, we have no control over where that code executes. That's the best uh, process to achieve in, in a trustless mechanism. Yeah. Mm. Like a mortgage, you know, sorry, Brian, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I was gonna agree with that and just say, you know, it's funny that these institutions who ha have been the trustees over our lives, basically when things go tits up, they then say, oh no, now we need to pass more laws, more regulations to fix the problems that they in fact created. So the financial crisis is a good example. Yeah, exactly. They basically yeah. then introduced a load of laws that made it harder for community banks and, you know, cooperative banks mm -hmm. to lend to, you know, what were previously sound borrowers. 
So it's sort of like the cure can be worse than the disease, yeah. or the cure almost is the disease. And what's so interesting is that with, you know, trustless custom consensus provided by the hypergraph, you suddenly have an alternative. Um, you know, if you have an option of going onto a website where you are just trusting what they claim about themselves, you're trusting their brand value, and then you have the option of going onto one where you know yeah. by dint of, you know, the proof of reputable observation consensus and DAG uh, and the meritocratic system that underpins mm -hmm. the whole ecosystem. Well, the, the choice is the latter. It's yeah. obvious. And what I think is so interesting is I think we're going to have to, we're going to see this unfold where there will be <clears throat> various companies that are basically trustworthy, you know, the new new wave, DAG-based, new internet companies mm -hmm. that have trust at the center of their design in custom consensus systems. They will also, by the way, also be more efficient, you know, better, faster and so on because yeah. of the hypergraph. And then you will have these other, these other laggards who are essentially still you know, trying to cling on to their status, to their, yep. to their, uh, place in the, in the digital economy, um, by dint of their brand value. And I think that it will be an interesting thing to watch how there is a changing of the guard. Yeah. And I fully expect alchemy to be at the center of that. Like, as you guys have mentioned in the past, the advertising industry is such a, it's a bit of a shit show, yeah. <laughs> you know? And exactly. And yeah. yeah. And you guys are, 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 you know, leveraging this incredible new technology that you identified so mm -hmm. early on. I mean, like, I mean, like when I, I think you were there right at the same time as me, we probably both found it around the same time. Mm -hmm. And like to be able to seize, to be able to first see it, which take took some acuity, some insight, mm -hmm. and then also to be proactive enough and to take the leap, I think is truly something extraordinary. And you deserve what's coming to you. You know, you deserve the rewards for that. Thank you. Um, and I look forward to, you know, watching your guys' success in the near future. Because it's funny, we just, um, we spent the last week at, I'll call it a bit, a bit grotesque, but the Can Lions conference where everyone was talking about like the next iteration of what might work on the internet. You know, how do we solve the issue of cookies disappearing? How mm. do we solve the issue of 50% ad tax? How do we solve the issue of the race to the bottom essentially? And we were sat in a taxi actually going to a discovery event and there were some pretty senior industry people in there that had all made their money, had been very successful off the kind of advent of the internet. And it was Vincent, our CFO, kind of asked a very kind of, we didn't tell anyone who we were. So we would just, he was like, can you think of any solutions that might solve for the issues you're facing? Like first party cookies versus third party cookies. And there was, it was crickets. They're like, well, I don't know. There's like lots of things that already exist and like maybe people have to come together and try and think of something new and it might be emails and universal IDs and I and it, it, it kind of shocked me that there was no impetus to want to look past what was right in front of them you know there's a lot of navel gazing that goes on and yeah given that we've all had two or three years where all you could really do was sit and think a lot of the time, the fact that still everyone came out and was like, yeah, so it's gonna be first party cookies and universal IDs. It was just like, oh, it made me feel very bullish to be honest with you. Yeah. I was like, we are streets ahead of yeah. where the market is right now and they won't even know what's hit it. But like that also presents an issue on the education on getting people right. to red pill themselves. But I think we would do that just by 
being transparent. We want to work with everyone in the advertising market. It's a one-to-many approach. You know, if like we land a partnership with a big existing exchange to help them save their costs on cloud computing because they're holding some ads tokens, the market becomes very big very quickly for us. So just being able to be kind of the people that are ushering that in. I feel very privileged to say that we're doing that. It's very stressful. I didn't look this wrinkly 18 months ago, (laughs) but like we have a mission, we have a purpose. It hasn't really changed since the company started 18 months ago and we just keep plodding away, you know, and weeks like last week made me feel very, very good because there's a lot of people that want to work with us. There's a lot of people that see the value in the features and I'm just excited for them to get under the hood and understand what makes us different, understand the benefits, because I'm excited for the day where there's a company that builds a service on our state channel that we don't know. You know, like if if Constellation of the primary business with secondary, I get really excited about the tertiary businesses that are going to come in that create custom algorithms for acquisitions of customers or increasing brand awareness you know what you can do for the first time because you have a distributed ledger that's the one source of truth that means that more people can get involved and trust the data yeah which doesn't happen right now yeah yeah it's like this idea of like it's sometimes sort of an opaque idea in economics but it's like there is value that is being unlocked there is value layers of value there that do not exist at present because the technology hasn't existed up until now. But now there's all sorts of new business models where you are essentially nucleating utility out of thin air. Mm-hmm. You know, you're improving processes and systems and creating new ones that yeah. are genuinely unprecedented. So yeah, absolutely, that is the manifestation of the creative freedom here, right? Yeah, That's where it gets super interesting and you start to see how people come build on what you guys are doing and also, you know, coming up with new novel models. Of business, absolutely. You know, in fact, uh, you know, um, when we started building on the hypergraph, um, we we we've learned so much as we went along, and and I uh, and I completely understand and admit that we don't know enough yet. Uh, at least personally, I don't. You know, uh, that there's so much more to learn. Yeah. Every time I speak to somebody or listen to a podcast or listen to a, uh, a Twitter Spaces, there's there's another perspective that we gain, and and it just hits home. You know, oh yeah, that can be used in this way as well. So it's that realization when when the penny drops for everybody and they start looking at how to use the infrastructure, how to use custom consensus, how to use fearless transactions, how to use instant reconciliation, all of those features in their ecosystem to suit their business needs in order to build a successful business on top of this infrastructure. And I think as we go along and people start to realize the power of these features, they will start thinking about ways in which to build successful businesses on top of this infrastructure. And that is a day that I look forward to. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing for me, and it was, I I forget when Wyatt said this and shout out to Wyatt for being a fucking genius, but... when he said that NFT is just a data type, right? Yeah. So, and uh, give Chorley credit this as well, because he said this to me afterwards and I was like, fucking hell, mate, write that down. But like NFTs in their current form are images, right? Yeah. But that's a data type that's stored on a server somewhere. And all your NFT is, is a key that's calling that particular data type, you know? So like that isn't limited to an image, you know? That's like the most rudimentary form of what that could be. It could be your NFT could be a complete app that only you are verified to use, which allows you to do whatever apps can do, you know, that is verifiable to you, to that individual, to that event, 
mm. to that use case, whatever it may be. And like, even in terms of e-commerce, you know, right, it could be that your Nike app that you download, rather than it just being the Nike app, it's your version of that Nike app. Mm. Anytime you purchase anything in that, you've effectively created a permanent cookie mm. where you will then have lifetime value from that consumer and every purchase that they create through the Nike Plus Club app or whatever it may be, you know, yeah. and that then starts to help marketers close the loop on attribution. Yeah. And I think every CMO, if you said to them, I can tell you what your best performing marketing channel is, they'll be like, tell me, please, please tell me, because right now their only solution is, okay, let's remove print and see what happens. Hmm. And if it goes badly, your CEO is going to be like, well, mate, why didn't, you, why didn't you run our double page spread for the last two months? Like we're down on our targets. Like, well, I was trying to figure out if it was useful or not. It's like, well, you're not useful to us anymore. Peace out, you know? <laughs> like no one's going to take that risk. No one got fired for ever serving a Facebook ad. Hmm. And using new data types and NFTs in this example is just really going to change the way that everything happens, you know? Like yeah. it's, it's like, can't be understated like this mm. is the beginning of the new beginning basically yeah. in my yeah. opinion which is very grandiose thing to say but from what we've seen yeah <laughs> what people talk like is there's evidence to me now i'm like double red pilled you know full believer in the, the church of the hypergraph you know like it's incredible to see what's going yeah. on i'm excited to see what it kind of plays out in in the next years yeah i'm a fellow member of that yeah. congregation yeah, well, welcome friend <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely. I think the mind boggles yeah. at the possibilities. And like you were saying, Chandra, there's so much to learn and it really is, you know, it is, a lot of this stuff is really profound, really deep. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to read some of the papers, um, you really need probably a PhD in math. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that strikes me as a possibility of, of these new novel uses that will emerge from the hypergraph is this whole idea of like generative effects. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, generative effects are essentially effects that emerge from a collective, but are not, not attributable to any one element yeah. but as a member of the collective. Um, and so like you actually hear a lot about you all, they're also, it's also called emergent phenomena. Okay. And like, um, I've often said that the hypergraph is like a lot like a brain. Yeah. Uh, and that's true in many different ways. It's actually fascinating how many similarities there are. The, you know, the fractal, self-similar, dendritic, entropy, you know, mm -hmm. entropy and tensegrity, which is a concept of Buckminster Fuller, uh, like a combination of tension and integrity. And the brain uses like inhibition to, to basically modulate its own its own frequencies and so on but leaving that for a second <laughs> um <clears throat> the idea that there could be these sort of emergent effects from the collective is very interesting to me you know like um one thing that i feel like isn't spoken a lot about with respect to the hypergraph is that it can actually perform actions mm -hmm. right it is actually an actor unto itself and Wyatt has described it as like semi-autonomous mm -hmm. and so if there are certain conditions fulfilled then certain algorithms will fire and that could be despite the fact that no one person has sort of like uh legislated that to fire or or executed or you know initiated that fire and so the hypergraph may well behave in ways that are not really fully discernible mm. to us <laughs> you know like it might start to do things that are about 
optimization, right? Because it has an intrinsic utility uh, metric, which is DAG. Um, but, but I think that it might start to behave almost in mysterious ways. Yeah. Um, and also ways that are positive that we just do not foresee right now because, you know, we just can't really, or at least it's difficult to imagine the way that these collective generative effects might might emerge. It could be, for instance, political. Mm. There might be a sort of like, um, you know, a sort of like political trends that emerge that are not really centrally organized at all. Uh, it might be sort of like, uh, you know, credibility. There might, be, there will probably be some sort of emergent credibility metric where certain people say, say that, for example, let's say there's a social network on DAG, yeah. and um, there are, there are people who post things, and they get some sort of uh, like or comment, and they get a certain amount of views, and repeat, you know, repeat viewers, repeat likes. Suddenly, you have this sort of like decentralized market of authenticity and credibility that will be far more powerful than anything you would get from a centralized politically political institution or organization. Because it, it isn't like, you know, people saying, hey, believe me, it's actually a true objective scoring yeah. of that. So that is just an example of like one of these generative effects that I think is going to be super interesting. But of course, I think we're going to see them in advertising too. You know? Absolutely. This yeah. is uh, the whole concept of uh, social validation, isn't it? Mm. Every person now strives for social validation. Mm. When it's a Facebook post, when it's a, 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 a Twitter, uh, on, on Instagram, on, on various other social channels, what people are looking for is that validation. Mm. And Absolutely. which is exactly what's happening on the hypergraph, validation in a way that is defined, that is customizable. Mm. So we're taking that uh, need for validation from an individual and expanding that into an ecosystem, into an organization, maybe even a geographical location. I don't know, there's no limit to this. Mm. So how do we validate certain parameters in order to take some action? And it's interesting you say that because there was like, I, I don't know if you remember when Instagram moved from a chronological feed to a algorithmically based feed on your interests. Yeah. And there was real big backlash against that because you weren't sure why you were seeing a piece of content. Whereas if you can just agree, I want to see the stuff that came out the soonest and I'll make my own decision. I'll apply my own custom consensus to that content, if you will. Mm -hmm. So like exactly, yeah. human beings innately have this rejection of something that they don't quite understand. And I think you just saw that through people saying, oh, actually, I want my chronological feedback, and yeah. now it's an option. You yeah, know, like yeah. It's come back I just now. switched back. It's yeah. so much better, right? I did it on Twitter, too. Mm -hmm. Like, you just get the latest news on Twitter, yeah. which is, like, kind of what it was there for, you yeah. know? And, like, yeah. less of these ridiculous, like, we think you like this and we think you like that. Because, like, when I think about TikTok, right? Like, it's a, it's, it's a great platform, I used it for a little bit of time and I stopped it. And I, I think it's a, it's a very niche British reference, but the demon headmaster, when you had kids in school, just like sat on their laptop and then their eyes were a bit funny and they did what they were told after that. And like, yeah. no one knows how TikTok al algorithm works, right? right? Yeah. You don't know why you're seeing certain types of content. You yeah. interact with it. You don't really, and I, I saw this yesterday. So I was at the gym and there was a baby that must have been, I don't know, I want to say between 12 and 24 months years, year old. He was sat on the counter and there was a little like fob that you tapped your card on. And this baby naturally picked it up and said, hello. <laughs> and that kind of blew my mind a little bit. And I, I, 
mm-hmm. did some reading about it and it's because like people take the pictures of their children on their phone like oh smile smile like well done you took a really so like from the very beginning you're teaching kids that dopamine comes from a mobile device right this tiny child knew what a device was and then you give an app that is just triggered designed to give you dopamine hits like that's where you get this demon headmaster thing coming from, you know? Yeah, like yeah. in a country that has social credit scores already, like mm. do we want to bring that? Mm. When Absolutely. You, you know, it's like kind of makes my skin crawl a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, completely. It gives me the willies. Yeah. But again, it is a generative effect. These things where you're, you're out, the algorithms are sort of like, are sort of like suggesting things to you on Twitter yeah. and Instagram. And you get the, I mean, at least I always got the feeling when I'm looking at Twitter, that has been ordered by the algorithm, I get like this uneasy, annoyed feeling mm. like it's wasting my time. Yeah. Of course, that's the goal. It wants me to stay on there. Yeah. And it is somehow computed based upon a load of factors that this is how it is going to get me to spend more time here. So it is probably not under the uh, you know governance of any one particular person sitting mm. at Twitter, like yeah. uh, manually reviewing my interests. <laughs> but... Uh, it's it's the algorithms. And so these generative effects, I think, can be very powerful. Mm. Um, and, you know, Noah, you, Noah Harari talks mm-hmm. about this a bit. He's like, potentially these algorithms understand you better than you know yourself. Yeah. So there is a level of introspection available to them based upon the, you know, the, the capacity of the data sets that is so capacious that they remember things that you've done that you've forgotten. Yeah. And they are actually changing you and your behavior on a daily basis based upon things that are now opaque to you, but not opaque to them. So for, for this reason, I think that it's really important the way the hypergraph is structured in a sort of like reputable observation. Yeah. It's based upon truth. Yeah. It's based upon valid transmission of data mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, not profit. Um, and so I think that that is a a really important thing, a really important feature because the hypergraph is something that's going to be incredibly powerful and it is going to have generative effects. Like I said, they could be quite strange, um, but that the DNA of the hypergraph is sound, you know, yeah. is is good at its core. I think, I, know, I forget the exact numbers, but I think it, once you've liked more than, I want to say, 10 or 15 different groups on Facebook, mm. Facebook knows you better than your wife knows you right. because... <laughs> There's some things that you admit to liking privately mm. that you wouldn't like say publicly. And so it does, as you say, give you a level of introspection into an individual that I won't freely give up to human beings, yeah, you know, exactly. which is kind of insane. And like the, the search bar feels very anonymous, you know, like you search for anything on a search bar and Charlie always talks about it. There's a book called Everybody Lies and like the, which looks into search bar data and one in particular was quite interesting was porn. The stuff that people search on porn sites yeah. is like wild. Yeah. But yeah. they would never say it out loud. You know? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. someone's looking at that, you know, yeah. like I used to go to a conference um, called De Mexico in Cologne, which is like 80,000 ad tech guys that show up and Pornhub have a stand and their messaging was always... So everybody's favorite porn crossed out in sight underneath. And I went to the booth just to ask them, they're like, yeah, we actually can reach 74% of Americans every single day, which is like kind of nuts. I don't, wow. I've been told that no advertisers I've ever seen have ever been on there. But um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like where I was going with that. But that in and of itself is just like the 
perceived anonymity of a search bar is actually a real misnomer and it it gives away a lot of insight that you wouldn't give away freely in a conversation in a pub, for example. Yeah, it's uh, what I love about alchemy, uh, you know, and the impression object is like I I was saying to Chandra that I was a data privacy lawyer Mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley when the GDPR dropped. God. (laughs) And it was like a nightmare. It It was, yeah. It had all of these ramifications for American companies. Mm -hmm who, you know, who are not theoretically subject to EU's jurisdiction. Yeah. And um, it just any, nobody wanted to touch PII, like personally identifiable information. It was like toxic because it triggered not only the cost of compliance, but also the costs of, you know, the penalties, which I think were like $4 billion on worldwide turnovers. It was insane. Some insane yeah. thing for, for companies of certain size. Mm-hmm. But like alchemy, r- abstracting all that away is just such a beautiful, clean solution. Yeah. You know, and it means it also protects people uh, people's autonomy yeah. because you don't have this mad data collection and this sort of like creepy peering into what people are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I just think that it's like literally a great thing for, for humanity. <laughs> Very true. You know, yeah. uh, there are actually two, two different perspectives to that. One is, what do we see as a user? You know, um, regulation for me as a user is intended to protect me. Um, but how would the, the authorities actually uh, determine that somebody is doing the right thing while handling my, as a user's information? Uh, do they have the power to actually check that the right thing is being done at the right time and then penalize people who are not doing that. In fact, when I was just talking to uh, a privacy lawyer uh, some time back and uh, he had served on ICO, which is uh, uh, the UK privacy uh, body. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, he was telling me that, look, the ICO cannot go after everybody. Just imagine a a situation where there is a data breach that is coming in from the NHS, which is the, uh, the, the, the health organization. Would you actually penalize them 4% of their global um, uh, revenue while you know that that penalty would actually affect the health of the nation? Yeah. What's the right thing to do? And how do we ensure that people do the right thing and do that without bias? Yeah, 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 absolutely. That is where I think custom consensus can come into picture. 100%, yeah. Where you're not only enforcing compliance to regulation, you're monitoring compliance. Mm -hmm. You're actually building those rules in order to make sure that people do the right thing at the right time and are held liable. All of that based on truth, built into the custom consensus in a decentralized way can be the the solution that everybody is looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's actually effectively achieving what the regulators are purporting to do. Yeah, basically. Regulators all come in after the fact and they're like, oh, you did this wrong. You have to give the government a load of money. Yeah. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. like, wait a second. Same question to you. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. like, shouldn't the victims be getting the money? Or like, it's it's such a funny sort of sleight of hand nearly. And it was... It was destructive, you know, like I worked for an exchange and GDPR went live and it was a 24x reduction in what we were earning on the exchange because you physically couldn't drop a cookie to prove that an ad had existed Mm. unless you had consent. There was no framework to manage the consent. I mean, even the framework that exists now is so that... The regulators are saying, well, actually, that's illegal. You can't store consent like that. So like... It was this very heavy-handed, broad-stroked regulation that actually served to help the big incumbents rather than kind of serve 
you and I as internet users at the end of the day. And yeah. for like, we've talked about like penalizing people that act badly, but then equally the converse is true. Like mm. if you are behaving by the custom, so let's say one of the rules in Alchemy Exchange is that you serve three ads a page, mm. you know, like tried and trusted on TV, beginning, middle, end. If you're serving 10 ads on a page, your score goes down. Mm -hmm. There's a financial penalization, so you have to pay to play. Mm -hmm. Or you can just serve three ads. The internet becomes quicker. Mm -hmm. There's fewer ads. You're getting more value for those ads. There's more engagement. Mm -hmm. And you get rewarded for doing so. It's like, why would you then behave badly? Yeah. Because there's no incentive to do so. Yeah, absolutely. There's proper, properly aligned incentives. Exactly that, yeah. You know, just... and. The rising tide, you know, at that point, because what I think has happened uh, in general across, like, and I'll say journalism, right? Like, you had Facebook that essentially says start again. So, like, to begin with, a website had their fixed capital, which was a newspaper, a website, and then their circulating capital, which was the eyeballs that were consuming that content. What platforms like Facebook were able to do were take some of your fixed capital in the content, surface it elsewhere, and then take your circulating capital with you. So the people that were creating the content were losing the eyeballs. So they had to write more salacious headlines to get clicks. They had to perhaps write headlines that weren't necessarily true, coupled with then significantly more ad units online, which then ruined your experience online. You're actually like, you know what? Instagram, Facebook is better. There's less ads. The ad, the ad unit on Instagram, in my opinion, is perfect. The execution's a little bit too creepy, but that is a sorry state of affairs. And then they're not beholden. They're just a platform that beholden to any of the news. Like, we just surface it. It's not us. It's them that wrote it. But yeah. they keep all the dollars from selling that, and they chip off a little bit left. And I spent a long time working at a publisher before. Um, not a long time. Eighteen months working at a publisher before, and they had one part of the business that was trying to work with Facebook. I had another part of the business that was lobbying against Facebook. And it's like, you can't, as a business, be pulled in two different directions and expect there to be a coherent strategy to move forward and grow. So by reestablishing the value, by putting more money back into the people that create value on the internet, you're essentially helping protect and secure the future of the internet. Mm -hmm be able to add more value to attract more talent back to the the advertising industry, which is kind of, there's been less of it. I mean, I never wanted to be an advertiser per se. I fell into it, loved the technology, and now here I am, you know? But like, there's less and less and less people that are going, actually, I want to get into it. And like you had in the the 50s in the Mad Men days, you know? So yeah. by like just by giving it back, being transparent, being a good actor, the addition of the effects of that could be profound, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. It's an exciting time, really, but it, really? it's a sad time, you know, that we have to solve this problem, you know, but like, here we are. Yeah. But no, it's so interesting what you said about like sort of the headlines becoming more salacious as yeah. a consequence of the advertising industry going awry. Mm -hmm. And that's like, it really makes me think of how like tight the coupling is between yeah. advertising and media and and expression, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is the public commons, yeah. And the the quality of the public commons has been has been going down for a long time, yeah. But now, by by re resolving and, and f really fixing the advertising issue, you can start to restore the internet as the public commons, yeah. 
And, um, you know, I think it's, it's truly something, something quite remarkable what Wyatt has done, creating that space that is truly publicly public. It's a true public space. Yeah. It's not owned by any one party. No one party can sort of decide that you're not, you know, welcome or you're not allowed into the space. So hopefully now what we will see is a restoration of, of good journalism and, yeah. um, and a sort of good internet experience. Because if I have to click another one of those cookies things, oh, <laughs> <laughs> drive me mad. They're ridiculous, you know, like... Do you want to accept cookies? Which I'd like to see. And then there's a hundred yeah. companies you've never yeah. heard of. You know? Yeah. Fuck I'll just click whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But. And there's there's one button in bright green, accept all. And in order for you to actually uh, reject all, you have to click about 20 buttons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Clearly that's not right. Yeah. Flick so all the switches. Yeah. <laughs> one by one. You know? It's ridiculous. And you can see the impact of it. Like my the Daily Mail's a good example. You know, like they will have 14 bidders to help monetize their site. And I don't blame the Daily Mail for doing it. You know, they have a lot of inventory to monetize. They do need a lot of bidders, but like, why is there so many? You know, like, and what I think with ad tech is that people quite often aren't looking to solve a problem. They're looking to create something new to sell, to support their revenue targets and their P&Ls that they've said to their investors and shareholders. And that is kind of where... We've had this like blue tacked and string and stuck together ad tech industry that started, I'll go back to the earlier point on Open RTB, you know, like one of the first oracles, which is like incredible in and of itself, is now like convoluted. I always kind of think of the big Pixar fan, but like in Wally, when they kind of zoom out of the planet and all the satellites are around the earth and it's like looks like a mess. Mm -hmm. And it feels like we're kind of coming back with the plant in the shoe and be like, look, we've got a way to fix this. There's a lot to do, but we've got the plant. Let's go plant it, let's grow it, let's multiply it and like see what the effects are, you know? And then yeah. people will learn, okay, if I grow that plant, I get this. And if I grow that plant, I get this. If I don't ruin their plants, then I can go get a different plant and we can grow more. And it just kind of then kind of bubbles up and extricates, you know? So it's... Yeah, it's 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 inertia, isn't it? That yep. is the biggest barrier to exactly entry. That, yeah, uh, we have a great idea. There's a problem that's worth solving. We have the technology to solve that problem. We know how to create that solution. But in my mind, the biggest barrier is inertia, and that is what we need to educate people uh, towards. That you know, this this is game changing. We need to move forward and leave the problems behind. We need to adopt the better solution. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was speaking with um, Kirk Bourne and Wyatt mm -hmm. two days ago on another spaces organized by Pete Harrer, uh, one of the Dag Chai community, shout out Pete. Um, and one of the things that we discussed was how Wyatt, rather than trying to improve on blockchains, which are deficient at a design level, um, he actually deconstructed the concept of a blockchain and he arrived ultimately at a logical definition, a mathematics of blockchain and DLT. And so he sort of designed from zero, right? He went back to basics and he said, this is really what's under the hood and this is how we optimize it. And he came at like this ideal description of uh, mathematics of blockchain. 
And, and I feel like you guys are, are doing the same thing, right? At the advertising level, like you've essentially identified the goal of advertising, which is the getting the impression object to the end user in yeah. an efficient manner. Um, and rather than sort of like trying to append things onto the existing industry, you're, you're basically doing something totally new and innovative. Yeah. And I think that one of the reasons that's possible is because of the custom consensus mechanism. Mm. You know, we're able to replicate what is underpinning advertising right now so we can meet the market where it is mm. using something they're familiar with. But actually when they look under the hood, they're going to be like, holy shit, there's loads more stuff that we can do with this. Like even contextual targeting, right, is a bit of a hot topic in ad tech right now, which makes a lot of sense to me. Like if an article is about football, you could probably infer that I like football. Mm. And then there'll be foot brands that Adidas football boots, for example, that would resonate quite well with me as a user. The ability for the hypergraph to crunch that data at a level, you could then have a means where not only is my, my preferences used to serve me ads, but also to build a feed of content on any website on the fly. And all I have to do is whitelist that site, hook up my wallet, and then I get my own feed of anything right. by holding my preferences at the edges. And like, I always tell this story and Diggles told me it a while back, but the Spotify example that he gives, right? Which is Spotify's USP is my preference in music, my playlists, the albums that I love. I mean, my angsty playlist with Fallout Boy in the middle, like whatever it may be. And my existential fear is that if that goes down, it's a decade of my music that's completely disappeared. Right. So I only have it in Spotify. And actually what would be better is if my preferences were held at the edge, mm -hmm. I could apply those preferences to any platform. So mm. it's like, okay, if I've got albums that I love, that I listen to at home on my hi-fi, I use Tidal, mm -hmm. much, much higher quality music. The bulk of my listening is done on Spotify when I'm on the move. And then maybe there's some playlists for DJs that I like on SoundCloud. But at the moment, they're all very disparate. And I just I just settle on Spotify, you know. But mm -hmm. it'd be better for me as an end user to apply those to everything. Mm -hmm. And I could use what I wanted when I wanted. And it, it, would, it would create more space for future technology coming in. It would create more space for... Yeah better usage, fairer usage, being rewarded for my data, incentives to use certain platforms, and the power comes back to the consumer again, which largely has been lost online. Yeah, opinion. true. And uh, it doesn't have to be that this data comes from Ben Putley. You know, it, yeah. it is a user who likes this type of music, and that is it. You know, so that is where we can completely anonymize the, the serving of ads, the, the serving of content, uh, the storing of preferences. And that's where uh, we have this compliance to privacy regulations, which is such a big problem today. So, and that I think is, is the power of the Web3. And, and building that in a custom consensus is the power of the hypergraph. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you've got a digital twin yeah. that is anonymous, so you don't trigger all the ridiculous regulations, mm -hmm. but it's also stateful. Yeah. And it can take inputs from many, many sources over, you know, your entire life. Mm -hmm. And it can be essentially leveraged by you both as a revenue stream, mm -hmm. or you can license your data. This is the whole concept of the datapreneur. But it also 
uh, is not like hard bound and coupled to any particular hard drive. So it moves with you yeah. no matter where you go on the decentralized internet that is the hypergraph. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's a, it changes things a lot. It does, yeah. True. And, and also on. the fact that it brings together uh, different ecosystems together. Uh, data from one state channel can be uh, shared with another uh, state channel. So the underlying L0 brings them all together, which means that uh, one person's music preferences can be used to maybe sell uh, uh, you know, concert tickets. That may be another uh, state channel where, where tickets are being sold. And fan, like fan tokens. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, so you know, where data from one state channel uh, seamlessly provides the input to another state channel and all of these ecosystems, disparate ecosystems, come together mm. based on data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when you add in AI, then it gets yeah. really interesting because yeah. suddenly, like, you can sort of like grant, you know, grant permission to AI models to analyze things and say, well, what is, you know, what is the solution to this problem I have? Right? I really like, you know, country music. Uh, here's what I've been listening to, but I'm bored of it. Can you please? come up with something yeah. new and oh there is that to some extent already right like we do we do have like um you know preference suggestions and such but it's just that the, the data set is so much bigger and yeah. and has greater integrity um and that you will be in charge of the ai model and you can sort of pick a good one that yeah, actually yeah, yeah. picks the right stuff for you so yeah i mean really the sky is the limit uh, yeah definitely is i think it's it's going to be exciting to see and i think it's like a lot closer than we all think i mean like chanju had some amazing updates last week so like we are chugging you know like we're not far um we've got partners ready to roll we've got advertisers publishers that have all shown a keen interest just on the features that we're offering they haven't really even seen what's under the hood yet so like that makes it even more exciting to me because they're excited about like the the spark notes it's like wait till they read the book yeah you know yeah, what i mean yeah, it's yeah. like it's gonna be pretty crazy yeah man i'm so excited to for you guys and to see what you guys have built and uh congratulations on all your success all your progress and you know and for taking taking the risk and doing this right it's it's uh you know yeah. you had the initiative you had the insight so again i i wish you the best and you deserve everything that's coming to you thank you very much i think thank on you. that we might wrap things up um Brian, thank you very much for coming in. We owe you a beer, which we'll probably deliver in the next 30 minutes. And awesome. Chanju, thanks for joining another one, my friend. It's always a pleasure um, to have you on a podcast. And thank you all for listening. Um, have a great evening, afternoon, morning, whatever it is you're doing. And we'll speak to you all soon. Thank you. Thank you.